going to read this together in just a few seconds. Uh, But first, let me pray. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And you have brought glory to yourself by speaking to us. Uh, disclosing your identity, uh, telling us what your plan is, your plan to deal with our great problem of our sin and to show your great love in getting rid of it and reconciling us to yourself. And our prayer is that as we listen to your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would Fill us with your spirit that we might understand what we look at and that we might be changed as a result through new faith or we pray deeper faith. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the time of year, of course, when uh, the cross again and the Easter story really comes into view for us. Um, The cross uh, for Christians is is uh, forever in our sights. Uh, We are called as gospel people, as cross-centered people, to live out cross-centered lives. That is, remembering the cross of Christ and what it means to us in the everydayness of life. But this is a time of year when we focus again and we remind ourselves that familiarity with the cross and with the Easter story is a terrible thing. When we consider what is going on and what is told, even in these few pages. And what I want to do, even at the start of this uh, sermon, is to encourage you this week to take your time this week. Read repeatedly through the Easter story, whether from Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. I nearly invented a new gospel there. Did you hear that? Matthew. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Read, Read them through. Read it through quickly tomorrow. Read one of the accounts and then read it through slowly the day after that and then even slower over the following few days. Meditate on these things. We, we breeze too quickly by some of these verses as I found out this week and it's good to pause. For us, the cross of Christ, as Calvin called it, is, is, is a theater of joy. It is where God puts on stage and puts on display his inimitable love for sinners, undeserving sinners like us. And it's important to reflect on that because not everybody sees the cross of Christ in that way. And I wonder if you're visiting today what you think about the cross of Christ. Maybe you side more with Nietzsche who thought the cross was ridiculous. The central claim of Christianity is, of course, that the Christ who died on the cross is God himself, God in the flesh. But Nietzsche would say, look at whom they worship. Look at this God whom they worship. How foolish and imbecilic to follow one who died and then to claim that that death is victory. There is foolishness and there is foolishness, Nietzsche argued, There is madness and there is madness, but to call death victory is the ultimate madness of all. This is a pathetic deity and he is followed by pathetic people. 
Well, I hope we'll see from our text today that we follow no pathetic deity, but a God of love and grace and power. Let's read together from Acts 18. Acts 18, John 18, 1 to 11. Force of habit. I've spent a year and a half in that book. Verse 1. When he, that is Jesus, had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials and from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing that all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would fulfill. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Amen. This is God's words. Well, I want to tackle this text in, with two main points uh, today. So if you're taking notes, here we go. Number one, the God who gives himself up. And number two, the God who lays his life down. First of all, the God who gives himself up. Uh, Here we have in this passage, when you take a slow reading through it, Jesus Christ revealing his identity as God in the flesh. In this passage, Jesus reveals his deity, and I want us to see that he does that in three main ways. First of all, by telling us his name. In verses 1 to 11, we see that Jesus has taken his disciples to an olive grove. It's called Gethsemane. We see that in other gospel accounts. And then Judas the betrayer comes with a detachment of soldiers and some temple officials. And Jesus goes out to them and asks, who is it that you want? And the soldiers reply, as we saw, Jesus of Nazareth. And verse 5 tells us that Jesus responded to them by saying, I am he. Now, for the sentence to make sense in English, translators have added the word he, but the fact is that the word he is not there in the original Greek. Jesus simply responds to their pronouncement, their request. He says, I am. I am. And actually, he does this three times in verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8. But what is significant about that? Well, to answer that question, we're helped by going back to the Old Testament. To Exodus chapter 3 and this wonderful moment when the Lord God of heaven and earth appears to Moses. Having heard the cries of his people in Egypt, he appears to Moses through this burning bush. 
And that's when, of course, Moses is told to take off his shoes for the place in which he is standing is holy ground. And before the Lord God goes on to disclose his great and gracious plan to deliver his people, his oppressed people, from the hands of this captor, this enemy, he discloses something glorious. He tells Moses his name. He tells Moses his name. And he calls himself the I Am. This is the name that God himself has taken for himself when he said, I am who I am. Say that I am has sent me to you, is what he says to Moses. So now, back in this text, when Jesus responds to the guards and says, I am, at the time of his arrest, he's not just identifying himself among the crowd as, okay, yeah, it's me, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're looking for. No, he's doing much more than that. He is declaring himself to be the Lord of heaven and earth. And what an incredible claim this actually is. He is taking the name of God for himself. Now, if a mere man or a woman does that kind of thing, you would think that that would be a little bit crazy. You think no person can actually say, oh, well, hello everyone, uh, my name is Liam and I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. You would think it would be utterly ridiculous. You'd think I'd be playing a prank. You'd think there would be something wrong. No one can claim that. But Jesus does. So what do we make of this claim? Jesus reveals his identity as God in the flesh by telling us his name and then he reinforces that as we go through the text. Secondly, by demonstrating his power. Look with me at verse 6. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, again, pause over this. Look at the detail in there. Who fell to the ground? Who fell to the ground? Well, it's a detachment of soldiers. Now, John uses a formal word here that in ancient literature is used to describe Roman soldiers. So I think the officials that are around us, that, that are added in here are temple officials. These are, if you like, the temple police, the Jewish guards. But there are Roman soldiers here and there is a detachment of them. Now, even if this was just a small section of a detachment of Roman soldiers, there was a considerable crowd there. And these are, if you like, imperial troops. Tough guys, well-trained, well-experienced in war. And what happens to them? They're the ones with all the weapons. But as they approach Jesus, this unarmed carpenter who says, I am, and all of them are floored. All of them fall back to the ground. Why? Actually, it's because Jesus is who he says he is. At the very start, he's just claimed to be the I am. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. And now he, with this declaration, causes them to fall to the ground. It's almost like he just unveils or pulls back the curtain just a little bit on his glory and on his power to let them feel the force of the one that they're addressing. It's like he just flexes his divine bicep, you know, with a mere twitch and they're on the ground. He hasn't even unleashed his full strength. Just a slither. Just a slither. And they're on the floor. Now why, why does this happen? 
Why does Jesus do that? Why take the name in this way? Why demonstrate his power in this respect? I think it's clear. I think it's because he wants them to have a sense of who it is that they're arresting. I think it must be to show them that this is no mere man that they're about to put in chains and later put to death. No, when he chooses to reveal his glory and display his power, he's showing them that he is more than a man, that he is the Son of God himself. Now that's important for us to know. It's important for us to reflect on. Especially if you're here, you're not a Christian, because in these moments, Jesus is actually, he just, he lets that slither of his power come out. But actually what we ought to understand from this passage is the amount of power that he withholds deliberately. His restraint, his glory in this passage, if you like, his majesty and his, the full force of his glorious power is retained. It's held back. And that's a good thing for us, for he in his holiness and glory, and if he revealed himself entirely to us, we in our weakness and our sinfulness in particular, we would be more, we would do more than just hit the ground. We would be crushed. We'd be consumed by his holiness, such as his purity. I think we see this even in the Old Testament examples of some of the heroes of the faith who are given some kind of appearance there's some kind of theophany where God presents himself to his people in a particular way to show them who he is and arrest their attention so for example with Isaiah when he appeared to him when the angels around him are just calling out holy 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 is the Lord God almighty when Isaiah has the deepest sense of God in the midst of that vision he cries out woe is me I am ruined, which literally means I am coming apart. I'm coming apart. And when you take what Isaiah says, and when you take what happens to the detachment of soldiers in John 18, we recognize that if neither strong men nor outstanding servants of God can stand before God, even at that time when his glory is veiled, how will we ever stand before God when his glory is truly unveiled? The Bible talks in both Old and New Testament of a day that's coming, a day of the Lord, a capital D, day. When every eye will see the Lord God for who he is. When Jesus came with his first coming, he came in humility. As a baby. Born into this world to grow, to be a man, to live among us. Yet at his second coming, it will be unmistakably clear as we sometimes sing, as the skies ignite and as every eye sees. How can we stand? How can sinful people like us stand when his glory is revealed fully and finally in that respect? Well, we'll get to that. But first we see another way in which Jesus reveals his deity and he declares his sovereignty. He declares his sovereignty. I find it fascinating in this whole passage, not just in verses 1 to 11, but through to uh, 1916. Who is it that has authority in this passage? 
Who is it that's in control? Uh, Was it the Jewish authorities? No, because as you read a little bit later on uh, in chapter 18, even from verses 28 to 29, you'll see that they did not have the power to exercise the kind of judgment and justice on the Lord Jesus Christ that they really wanted to exercise. What they had to do was take that to the Romans. So Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor at this time. So is he ultimately in control? Well, no. If you turn over the page with me to chapter 19, verse 10, when Pontius Pilate is interrogating Jesus, he becomes frustrated with him because Jesus isn't defending himself. He's not speaking up for himself. Like a sheep before his shearer is silent, Jesus doesn't respond. And then Pilate says, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Now listen, Jesus replies, you would have no power over me were it not given you from above. All of these things, the declaration of his name, the demonstration of his power, and this declaration later of his sovereignty shows us full and well that Jesus is the one who is in control here. He's the one with all the authority. He's running the show. They're not forcing him with chains and scaring him with their swords and with their threats. Didn't Jesus say that he could command a legion of angels and they would come to his aid at any point? Of course. He could cause these chains to break in an instant. But Jesus demonstrates his authority in this passage and demonstrates his control. And I want to see another two things that prove that. Verse 4, he goes out to meet them. Did you notice that? They're coming into the garden, but he's the one who's taken the initiative. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? So he's the one who actually sets up the conversation that allows him to declare his name and show his power. And then Jesus says again, doesn't he? Sorry, sorry. uh, Who is it that you want? He asks them again. Now, Jesus didn't suffer from bad hearing. He wasn't deaf. You know, I'm pretty sure that it wasn't the case that the temple official mumbled, Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Sorry, who? No. Jesus, in every step, with everything he does, and every word he utters, he's demonstrating his utter control. His authority. And he's able to do that because he's deity. God in the flesh. The second thing he does, now this is fascinating in verses 10 to 11. He demonstrates his control by stopping his men from fighting. In verse 10, rash Peter decides to put up a fight, but Jesus is the one who breaks it up. In verse 10, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. That's good detail. The servant's name was Malchus. Even better detail. Jesus commanded Peter, though, put your sword away. Put your sword away. Why is Jesus saying this? He's doing this to give people like us every assurance of the fact that he is no victim in this regard. He is walking forward into the events of Good Friday for our benefit to display his love and save us from that which would crush us. To give us a way to not 
fall on the floor when his glory is finally revealed on that capital D day of judgment, but a way to stand. A way to stand in righteousness and in justice. He's in control. Pathetic deity. Pathetic quote. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What a sentence to describe the things that will happen in the ensuing hours in Jesus' life. The things that we would do well to reflect on in these coming days. Because with that sentence and in that instant, we're given the reason why Jesus does not fight back. The reason why he does not flee with one simple reference to this thing, this cup, we're given insight into why he gives himself up. And our understanding of what this cup represents and what it means to drink it helps us to see Jesus as the God who lays his life down. He's not just the God who gives himself up. He is the God who lays his life down. What we see in this reference to a cup harkens back to a quote from Isaiah and in other places actually throughout the Old Testament where it describes the cup, if you like, represents God's anger towards sin. It is, as we know, his wrath. Now these references to this metaphorical cup are, if you like, filled to the brim with God's just judgment or wrath towards sinners. People who have defied his words and rebelled against his authority. And actually that's a pretty good description of what we all do, isn't it? No one has kept his word perfectly. Uh, We all, in various ways, have turned away from God and sought to live our own way as the kings and queens of our own existence. But God, by the very perfection of his moral nature, is, if you like, wrathful towards that. Our sin is an offense against him by account of the fact that he is our loving creator. But God is angry at sin, not just because it's an offense against him, but because it's destru- of its destructiveness to the things that he had made, the, dis- the destructiveness to us as humans. And I want you to understand that when God gets angry, it's not the mere petulance of some kind of offended deity because his commands are not obeyed. Actually, we should want God to be angry towards sin, especially when we see some of the injustice that we see in our own life and in our worlds. No, this is the necessary response of a God who will uphold his moral authority in the universe. And although God's wrath does not contain the sinful emotions associated with human wrath, It does contain a fierce intensity arising from his opposition to sin and his determination to punish it to the utmost, to get rid of it. So God is really angry towards sin. So when we sin, I wonder if we recognize that. I certainly didn't recognize that. Before the age of 19, I did not know Jesus Christ. I would not have called myself a Christian. I was defying his word and rebelling against his authority. I was living however I wanted to live with no regard for his commands and essentially no regard for my safety. 
But those sins heaped up God's anger towards my sin and made me, as Ephesians says, an object of his wrath. And that's true for each and every one of us. As Romans 3 tells us, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who does good. As we saw in Isaiah 53 earlier, a fantastic description in there. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Well, how then can we stand before this holy God on that capital D day when we are in that kind of predicament? Only because Jesus Christ walks forward to his arrest. He submits himself to chains. He submits himself to the spitting and the mockery of human courts and fickle crowds. And in the end will surrender his arms and his legs to a cross. That's how. And when Jesus in John 18 11 makes reference to this cup he's saying I'm the one that's going to drink this cup this cup of wrath that's deserved for all mankind I'm the one that's going to drink in the place where I am going to drink this cup to the dregs is the cross it is going to be at the point of his death and Jesus is going to go to that cross to take the cup that we deserve to drink and drink it himself Even though he's done nothing wrong, remember Jesus Christ is sinless. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin, Hebrews tells us. And even when you look in the crucifixion episode, Jesus is repeatedly declared to be innocent. In verses 20 to 21 of this passage, Jesus himself says, look, I've done nothing wrong. In verse 38, repeats the same. 19 over the page, chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 4. Uh, Pilate's coming out and saying to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. There's a similar statement made in verse 6 of chapter 19. Pilate announcing three times, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And what are we meant to see in that? The one who's going to go to the cross is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. This is going to be a great exchange. The innocent, Jesus, for the guilty, us. He's going to take that cup of wrath and drink it to the dregs and breathe his last so that all who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus can take into their hands the cup of salvation. And drink it with joy. That's the other cup that is mentioned in the scriptures. Of course, Psalm 116, verse 13. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. There is a way to be delivered from this wrath, you understand. There is a way to be free from this all-consuming judgment when the Lord reveals his great power on that capital D day. And it's to turn and trust in Jesus. Isn't that amazing that Jesus Christ, the Lord God of heaven and earth, would condescend to our existence in taking on flesh and the God-man himself would walk forward willingly by his own volition, laying down his life to be nailed to a cross for us. Brothers and sisters, let's, let, 
that not become familiar to our hearts. And if you've not fully understood that at any point, let this be the day that for the first time you see that actually God is angry towards sin. But in his love, he has made a way to be rid of that sin and its judgment by taking it on himself through Jesus and the cross. I was struck this week as I was looking out my window that at the steeple at Shamrock Place, our offices are on the back of Shamrock Place, I look out my window and this, the steeple, the big tower, just fills the whole window really. I don't know if you've ever looked at the tower or the steeple and most people look at it and think that's a very green pointy spire uh, on top. Uh, but I don't know if you've looked right at the top, there's actually a cross. It's a very little cross, but there's one there. And then from that cross, it's not just a cross, you see. I think it is symbolic, obviously, that this is what this building is going to be all about. It's going to be all, be all about the gospel. But it's a, there's a dual purpose to it, I realized. It's a lightning rod. And from that cross, there is this great big green wire that goes all the way down the side of the building and goes down into the earth. And the point of the lightning rod is, of course, that if the building were to be struck by lightning and the lightning rod was not there, then destruction, fire. You like the sound effects. That's what it would sound like in my head. But it would be devastation, there would be fire. If people were in the building, they were operating stuff, there would be electrocution and death. It's not good. Praise God for lightning rods, right? But when lightning strikes the lightning rod, the building is spared that catastrophe and that destruction, that charge of power. And it's diverted and rerouted into the ground. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. By dying there in our place, drinking this cup to the dregs, he's consuming and absorbing, if you like, the wrath of God into himself and at the same time diverting it away from us so that we might not face the full impact of that judgment but be saved from it because Jesus paid the price for it my question to you today is do you believe this and what kind of difference does it make to your life maybe this is fresh news for you the fact that the way we live our lives matters before God we're very bad at keeping even the rules that we set for our own existence aren't we uh, you know, we don't live according even to the morals that we set for our lives or for, uh, you know, the expectations that we have for people around about us, whether it's our children or our friends or family or whoever. How crazy it is then to think that we have some kind of moral perfection in us that would help us to fulfill the, the law of God in all of its fullness. We cannot. Therefore, we are sinners and objects of God's wrath. Yet in his great love, he sent his son to die that death in our place that we might have life in his name. My question is, how will you respond to this? There are a couple of responses in this passage that we see, um, particularly in ver uh, 
later on in verses uh, 28 and uh, sorry 19 and following even in 28 and 29 you see a little bit of the experience of the the response if you like of the Jews they are not moved by Jesus claims they're they're suppressing the truth concerning his power that has been manifest and they are they're the kind of people who like to say well I prefer my life the way it is I don't really want to accept this I'd rather have my religion or my self-styled worship of my self-made gods. That's what they're saying when they're saying, we don't want to go into the palace. We want to be able to eat the Passover. You're like, Jesus is right there. The one the Passover points to is, he's just about to die. But you prefer your life the way it is. It's so ironic. And in chapter 19, verse 15, they give up their heavenly king in preference for an earthly king. Take him away, take him away. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar. What a declaration of the inner workings of their heart in those moments. Maybe that would be you. Or maybe you're more like Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, look with me at verse 36 of chapter 18. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? What is truth? Pilate asked. Nobody can know if that's true, he says. Jesus comes declaring these words of truth to Pilate. It seems that he decides that Jesus is just a teacher of abstract philosophical questions to which no one can really find an answer. He seeks no answer from the only one, the one who right in front of him could actually give him the answer to any question that he ever wanted to ask. And how ironic again in this passage that the one who is charged with determining the truth dismisses it dismisses it in the presence of the one who is the way the truth and the life brothers and sisters uh, friends if you're not a Christian don't let that be you today the right way to respond to take that cup of salvation in your hand you need to do two things you need to repent and believe to repent is to turn away from your sin the way that you have been living spending yourself in rebellion and defiance against God and turn to him in faith believing in him trusting in the blood of Jesus as the thing that averts God's wrath from you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you will be spared that judgment on that capital D day why don't you ask the person who brought you why don't you speak to one of us at the door we'd love to talk to you about this it is good news, good news to believe this Easter time. And if we are Christians, brothers and sisters, of course, let this not become familiar. Read through these passages again and again. Let's see the magnitude of the deity dying. God himself nailed to a tree. See the magnitude of his great love and the great lengths that he would go to to reconcile us to himself. Though we did not deserve it, though we could never ever repay it, 
By his grace, he did it. And has won us. Adore him. Worship him. Live for him. Turn away from sin in daily repentance and live for him. For he died that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and gave his life for us. Trust in him. Be saved. And we pray this and ask that God would help us to share this great message with others this Easter time as well. Let the truth of the cross fill your hearts and fill your mouths so we might share it with others. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, how grateful we are for your love. Without your love and without you sending your son into this world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, we would be in a terrible state. Oh Lord, we recognize we could never save ourselves. We needed him to do this. And we pray that we would indeed adore him and worship him. We pray that you would help us to live for him and for his glory. And we pray that you would help us to tell other people about him. Help us over this Easter week to reflect on these great truths of the cross and the resurrection again, that our hearts may be filled with joy unspeakable. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.